So in this episode, we're going to be talking about plot twists. And usually for the podcast, we we note in the show notes if we have a spoiler in the episode. And in this episode, it's just going to be basically all spoilers, so you're not really going to be able to avoid it. But if you'd like to know what shows exactly and films we'll be spoiling, you can look in the show notes and we'll have a full list of those. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amani. On this week's show, we're talking TV twists and whether they work anymore. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt solar Sites. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Matt and Gazelle. Hi, Jen. Hey, Jen. Good to have you here. Um, yeah, we wanted to talk about twists because Mr. Robot did a th- another big twist last week. On yeah. Their, I, I believe it was the eighth episode of the series and of the season. Kind of similar to what they did last year with the um, Elliot. Mr. Robot is actually his father and a hallucination fight club-esque thing. And Darlene the, is his sister. And Darlene, and her, is, Darlene his sister, is his sister. Which, which I actually is, thought was the better twist. Did you? Yeah. yeah. To me, it was a little too Return of the Jedi. But, you know, <laughs> I guess it's all It was right, at I least guess. less, I, I, it was less obvious. Yes. Because yes. it, yeah, you just. Yeah, I, I didn't figure that part of it out. I figured out a lot of the, the relationship with him and Slater I don't know, episode two. Right. So I agree. The Darlene part of it was a, more of a surprise for me. Yeah. And then this season, we have the, he's actually been in a prison kind of shutter The whole Island. time, right, which our, our own uh, uh, Abraham Reisman yes. uh, predicted uh, very first week. He did, indeed. Actually, and, you know, I almost hate to discuss it this way because it makes it sound like it's a contest to see which is smarter, the show or, or the viewers. And... Uh, I don't I don't like reading about or judging art in that way where it's all a question of like are they smarter than me or am I smarter than the show? I just think that's bullshit. I hate it. I really really hate it. I think it's like contrary to everything that entertainment and art should be about. But uh that said, you know, if you're going to do that, you got to you got to be really smart. And I I kind of wonder if it's even possible to outsmart the audience anymore because it's not just one person you're trying to outsmart. You're trying to outsmart several hundred thousand or several million people. And that to me is like it just seems like, you know, why uh Bobby Fischer or Gary Kasparov or whoever could not beat, you know, Big Blue. <laughs> you know, because yeah. that's like that's a machine that was worked on by a room full of geniuses. So a room full of geniuses beats one genius. Right. You know, I just the math is against them. It's not going to happen. And you wrote in a piece about this last week, just how our Internet culture has kind of encouraged this Reddit culture. Twitter, the kind of over analysis that happens. It's it's you know it's not so, for me it's not so much over analysis. It is it is analysis of the most superficial, most unimportant aspects of almost anything that's thoughtful at all. Like it's like it's like you know obsessive scrutiny of the surface of things, and uh, 
And I think that the creators fall into this. I think Sam Esmail fell into this too. I mean, I'm sure he's just naturally inclined to love these sorts of stories. But I just think that show is so great. It's just so great in so many ways. And it's so great at things that almost no other show on TV is great at that it bothers me that they feel they have to do that. I think a lot of people genuinely didn't see the twist coming too. So I think it completely changes your viewing experience if you if you either figure it out or if you're you read an article like the one on vulture.com about it right and i'm curious if you think if we didn't have this culture of kind of extreme scrutiny would you still not like the twist mm, i still wouldn't like the twist i mean <laughs> i didn't like it when i think the only movie where i really really liked it like hollywood type movie was uh, fight club I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I thought that was pretty that was pretty cool. I mean, although the last third of Fight Club is not as interesting as the first two thirds. Like when, once they revealed that Tyler Durden is is a figment of his imagination, the film becomes very kind of conventional and boring. And that's what these kinds of twists often do. And just like and and they detract. This is my big issue: is they suck the air out. They suck the creative air out of a project. That could be so much more interesting, that that could be so much more surprising and so much more deep. And like, look at that movie, A Beautiful Mind, you know, with the with the, the Ron Howard film uh, with Russell Crowe. I mean, when they reveal, they do the same thing. They got a Tyler Durden type reveal in that, too. Like this character that you thought was a character is a figment of his imagination. It's like, why don't you just tell a story of a brilliant mathematician who's also mentally ill? Just do it. Just do it. It could be great. Yeah. It could be great. It could be so great. You could, you know, Russell Crowe would probably still win an Oscar. They'd give him a, they would have given him a second one. He would have been so good at that. But, you know, what what like I didn't learn anything about what he actually did, John Nash in that movie. <laughs> because they were so busy like filling filling his head with figments of his imagination and trying to fool the audience. Right. I just hate it. I just hate this kind of thing. It's Yeah, that well that movie I felt like it didn't work at all. I, I had a lot of issues with the beautiful mind. Not that this is going to be the beautiful mind podcast, but <laughs> uh but I guess I I differ in opinion a little bit with you Matt in the sense that I feel like it is possible to watch a show and to dissect it and to try to kind of guess where it's going to be going, but to also appreciate the artistry of it at the same time. And since we've been talking for almost 10 minutes and we haven't talked about Lost yet, I feel like we're way overdue. <laughs> I was um, just about to bring that up, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Always here for you on that regard. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I feel like there was so much joy in that community of trying to dissect what was going on. And and and, and in some ways, again, maybe that sucked the air out of what the, ultimately was the finale because everybody was waiting for some big ta-da and there wasn't really a ta-da to be had. But – I got as much joy from watching the episodes and appreciating the way they were shot and the way they were acted as I did in the conversations that people would have and the wild tangents people would go off on um, with their theories. Uh, it was all part of a collective experience to me that that I I thought was really wonderful. So I, I feel like there is some something good to come out of those kinds of discussions. It's just that when they take over and, and as you were saying, there's a sense of I know better and, and, and that becomes all that it's about. That's when it falls flat. I feel like on Lost, too, they turned into conversations about religion and philosophy. Yes. And, you know, it had, yeah, there was absolutely. more weight to it. So yes. even if it didn't kind of pay off the way people wanted, there there was still so much there. It was still worth it because you'd had those conversations. Well, right. yeah, here, what it really ultimately comes down to is I don't think this particular aspect of storytelling is interesting. 
it's really almost never interesting, and it's almost never as interesting as all the stuff that's going on around it. And I guess maybe from a commercial standpoint, I can understand the necessity of having a hook or something like that. But what do you give up when you do that? What are you giving up creatively when you, when you choose to focus so much of your time and your energy on fooling the audience in some way? And, and here's another frustrating thing. As Sam Esmail has said, well, I'm not trying to fool anybody. There's little clues there from the beginning. Like, eh, yes and no. I don't know if I really believe that. I mean, to me, it seems more like insurance in case somebody guesses it. Yeah. You know, I don't buy it. And and in any case, we're talking about a show where, you know, it's got a, an unreliable narrator already, which is really hard to pull off, and they do it masterfully. He's inhabiting a world that's a sort of satirical warped reflection of his own paranoia, which is also really hard to do, and they nail it. And then it, and then it becomes this kind of parallel universe story of, of America and the age of financial collapse and society is crumbling, and that begs the question of whether revolution is uh, – Good for its own sake, or if it sometimes brings about uh, just a new set of problems. These are this is that's something that's there's a level of philosophical depth to that question that television rarely poses. Like you know, I'm not going to say that uh, Noam Chomsky is going to hang it up when he watches Mr. Robot, but Mr. Robot is the only show on TV that's really asking questions like that. It's like you've got all of this incredible stuff. Why do you have to do the look? What's that behind your ear? It's a penny. Anybody can do that. And it feels, it feels like Sam Esmail, when he talks about it, he frames it as uh, this is a this is insight into our relationship with Elliot. And, you know, he's been lying to us and he doesn't trust us. But I really don't care about that part yeah. of it. You know, like, I don't feel like I have I need to have a relationship with Elliot where I care about whether he's lying to me or not. I'd rather see it happening within the TV show. I, I don't know. Right. It's like it's this level of like fourth wall breaking that doesn't really work for me on the show where I do like his narration. But sometimes it just veers a little too into like gimmick. It feels a little gimmicky. Well, but if that's the motivation for, for doing that and for doing the, you know, Mr. Robot is actually his dad and Darlene is his sister in season one. Like if that's the motivation behind it to sort of add another layer to our relationship with the audience, that it's really about his relationship to the audience. It's like he already has a relationship with the audience by virtue of being the main character in the show and being the sole narrator right. and and having the entire world be sort of grotesquely warped to reflect how he sees the world. Like we already have a relationship. It's a very complicated, interesting, problematic relationship. What are you really adding when you do that? I, I just I just don't see it, and I and I hate being in this position because like the last ever since I published that piece, fans of the show have been coming at me and saying, you, wh "Why don't you like the show? Why don't you like the show? It's 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 you know it's such a good character driven show. All of these twists come out of character. There here's the following reasons why they did that, and it's like I'm not saying that it can't be done. It's the execution that I have an issue with, right? And and also I, I question some of the thinking behind doing it at all. You know, I'm not saying that, uh, uh, that you know, no show, no movie should ever do something like this. I'm just saying when you're doing something that's such a, such a high level, such a high level creatively, aesthetically, intellectually as Mr. Robot, what do you want to do the thing that, like, a beautiful mind can do? I also think in the first season they did this better than they did in the second, even though I had figured out elements of the twist early on um, in the first season. Uh I, I felt like figuring out what was going on in that relationship was central to also figuring out, well, is is Elliot really going to join Mr. Robot and and the hackers and, and do 
what they're all proposing that he do. And so I felt like all that was really central. There, there just felt like there was more of a narrative spine to the first season, for me anyway, than there does to the second season, which has just been frustrating me to the point of pulling out my hair <laughs> every week when I watch <laughs> right. it. And, and I also think, and, and I don't know how, how this plays, but I watched season one, like, I didn't watch it as it was airing. I watched it all in sort of a binge type of situation where you don't have a week that lags where you're still pondering, well, what what's really going on there in that relationship? Is Christian Slater alive? Is he dead? You figure it out as fast as you can watch it, you know? Right. And so I think that makes it less um, frustrating. Uh, it, you get that part of it resolved a little bit more quickly than you do when you're waiting week after week after week for them to explain something. But I also feel like this whole, you know, him being in prison – Again, we kind of figured that out to a certain extent, partly because Abe figured it out for us. And I read that piece and I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Great. It's episode one. and I already know what's going on. Um, But it also he just Elliot feels so because he's in prison, he's removed from what's going on. And so I don't feel like he's driving my perspective on everything in the same way that he did in the first season. Um, So it didn't feel like as crucial that twist as the first season twist does, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It feels like everything happening on the show that is interesting this season actually has less to do with Elliot. I mean, I personally think the Darlene stuff has been more interesting. Not the Darlene stuff, the sorry, what's her name? Angela. Yeah. You know, like that was, that felt like the the climax of the show when she's doing the hack and like, yeah, that no, was, that was you're great. kind of watching. That was the most her- engrossing part of the season. Yeah. I completely agree. And you, you watch her progressing up to that, you know, and like it feels like Elliot has been kind of sitting there. I don't. Not doing I don't mind much. that either. I don't mind that either. I, I. But you know, I think. I think with uh, the advent of long form storytelling, as they call it, I think that a lot of storytellers have lost track of the fact that just because you have that time doesn't mean you have to use it. Let's say there was a Mister Robot movie. It was a hit. And it ended on a somewhat ambiguous note. You weren't sure quite what happened to Elliot. I mean, it seemed like there was a victory, but maybe one that brought about as many um, complications as it did solve problems. And then you pick up again, and he's in prison. And if it was a movie, they would they would have him be in prison, and then somebody would spring him out of prison for whatever reason, and there would be a new story. Yeah. You know, like we don't need. Do we need eight episodes of him in prison? Right. I, and do and do we and do we need to have this additional layer of him? God, uh, I'm doing what I always say that I'm never going to do, which is criticize. You know what a show, just say saying what a show ought to be instead of criticizing what it is. But right. I think I am criticizing what it is, and and I'm saying this out of love. I really am because I love this show and I want. The, I think the show could be one of the greatest shows in the history of television if it could get out of its own way. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what constitutes a TV twist in the way that we are? talking about it Mm. yeah i mean i think um sometimes people talk about twists and they they use that as if it's a synonym for just something that is surprising or shocking and i think what we're talking about with a twist is something that it either subverts a a tv trope to the extent that you not only were surprised by it but it does something unexpected based on what tv usually does or and this is what mr robot does it alters your perception of everything that you've been watching for the previous X number of episodes. So I feel like that's what a twist is. It's really altering your perception of what the reality is that has been presented to you up until now. Um, so certainly the Mr. Robot stuff constitutes a twist. I would say, you know, 
in the first season of 24 when Jack's wife dies at the end after we spent an entire season investing in him saving her. Um, that was a little bit of a twist because it just was not what you would have expected, um, at, at least at that time, out of a TV show to do. Um, but like the Red Wedding on Game of Thrones, which Gazelle and I were going back and forth about that this morning. Like that, To me, that's not a twist. It's, it's shocking in its brutality. Um, not surprising if you read the books, but it's not really a twist. No, no, right, it's not a twist in, you know, like in the sense of uh, in Psycho, Janet Lee's character gets killed 40 minutes into the movie. You think she's the main character and they kill her off 40 minutes of the movie and then you have a different protagonist and I mean, suddenly you're sympathizing with the killer. Like, is that, you know, is that a twist? I, mean, I, I feel like that's just the story. It's too much a part of the story, whereas a twist isn't the story. Right. It's something that happens maybe changes, as you're saying, Jen, your perception of the story. And Jen, when we were talking about Game of Thrones, you mentioned, you know, Ned Stark in season one. That felt more like a twist because it changes your perception of what the show is is willing to do. And you you thought he was the main character. Well, I would disagree. I I would only disagree with that in the sense that that did not alter our our fundamental perception of what Game of Thrones was. Like I feel like you know you know what I mean. Well, we finally understood what Game of Thrones was because of it. Right. Yeah. Although I think in the long for me in the long game of Game of Thrones, the death of Ned Stark. If you could somehow compress all of this into the length of like a three hour feature film, Ned Stark's death would be something would have that would might have happened at the end of like you know, minute 10 or minute 12, where right, it's like right. the king, now the kingdom is in disarray because Ned Stark has been beheaded. Right. You know, and so, and I think that screenwriters, feature film screenwriters would call that the inciting incident. Well, you know what I mean? I think that can be a twist too, though, because I think on television, twists often work better when they happen at the beginning of the show than at the very end. Mm. When the one I'm thinking of is Alias and how you find out that Sydney Bristow has been working for the bad guys when she thought she was working for the good guys. And that sets the show into motion. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's a twist because you, you're watching it and you have, no, you have no idea that's coming. But then, you know, that, as we were talking about, that is what the show is, as opposed to, you know, finding out at the end of Lost that they've been in purgatory you're like, oh, that's what I was watching? <laughs> and you just, you have to, it just doesn't, there's just too much pressure on it. I don't know. It just. There's also the risk when you do a, something like, I I almost wonder if there isn't a, a different word that we could use instead of twist, because I feel like a twist, like we're defining it so many different ways. Like we can mean, it's one of those words that can almost mean anything I want it to mean, you know? Right. But I, so I don't know if that's the right word, but certain types of twists they run the risk of making the audience feel like they've wasted their time. And whether that's fair or not is, is, is probably a separate adjacent question. But, but like one example of that for me is The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. So at the end of The Usual Suspects, we find out that uh, Verbal Kent is really Kaiser Soze, which is cool. But it also means that that entire story that you've witnessed is bullshit. It's bullshit. It's an, it's an incredibly clever, funny dramatization of his bullshit. It has nothing to do with anything that actually happened with this, you know, right. with this heist that was precipitated. Like the real details, we don't know those. That's not what we, what we spent the last two hours watching. And that's why, like, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that movie the first time I saw it. It was a great experience, but I have never watched it a second time. I got it. That's all there is. The movie gave it to me in that final shot. And it's like, and in blowing out that match, it released me of any desire ever to go back and see the <laughs> film again. It's like, but that's do, it. Do you- Matt's gone. <laughs> 
you know? <laughs> <laughs> to use another movie as an example, and this does bring us back to Mr. Robot a little bit because we're talking about M. Night Shyamalan and, and The Sixth Sense, which everybody made such a big deal out of the twist at the end of that movie and the fact that, you know, spoiler alert, Bruce Willis is dead. Uh, but when I think about that movie, and, and I've watched it numerous times since then, the stuff I think about has nothing to do with that twist. It's about really the the scene with Tony Collette in the car um, with Haley Joel Osment and when he's talking to her about seeing her mother and she starts crying that, I mean, that scene just kills me every single time. And that's what makes that movie really, really great is that um, it's not that there's a twist at the end. It's that it, that twist tells you something about that. This movie is more than just a horror movie. It's about heartbreak and loss and grief. Um, so that's an example to me of a twist that everybody focuses on the twist, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't dilute, um, the rest of that film. It actually, speaks to what the rest mm-hmm. of the film is about. I wrote about that in the spoilers piece because I had a, a, a sort of a weird relationship with that film in that I didn't see it uh, when, you know, I was a, a professional critic at the time, but I didn't go to the press screening. So the movie opened and everybody was talking about, holy shit, The Sixth Sense, what a great movie, and how about that twist? And I was like, what twist? Don't tell me, and I'm covering my ears. And then Entertainment Weekly comes in the mail, and I happen to be flipping through the front of the book, and there's an article about the twist in The Sixth Sense. And there's and there it is in boldface. They were good about it. It said, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, don't read this article. And I said, okay. And I turned the page, and my eye fell on the exact sentence <laughs> no, where they does. tell you what it, Yeah, that was how it happened. I was like, well, okay, now I know. And then I went to see the movie, and I really, really liked it. I really liked it. Like, knowing that he was dead all along didn't bother me. It's like when he gets shot in the beginning, it's like, okay, and now he's dead. And then the rest of the movie became a study of a guy who was in complete denial about his the truth of his existence. It's like you watched it for the second time, the first time. Yeah, and I didn't mind that. Yeah. And, and there was still plenty to get. There was plenty yeah. to get in that. Um, Fight Club, uh, you know, I don't think quite so much. I still love all the, sa- the sort of satirical touches and him ranting and raving about, you know, the evils of late capitalism. And it's funny. It's like, you know, it's like the graduate. It's like the, you know, the very left-wing graduate. But then, one, then when they're beating the crap out of each other in a parking garage, then it becomes like almost every other Hollywood action film, you know? I, right. I just think, like, I can't think of very many instances where this sort of whopping, massive, pull-the-rug-out-from-under-you twist in a movie or a television show has really added anything that matters. I mean, I think with Mr. Robot, I, I kind of felt that way with the Darlene twist, just because it completely changed my perception of who Elliot was yeah. and kind of what we were watching and how he was engaging with the world. And like, I, I think I, I thought that was as close as I have felt to the type of twist you're talking about Yeah, in recent mm-hmm. television. Although I would pose, I would pose a, a follow-up question to that, which is hype. Just, just imagine, imagine if you will, that from the very beginning, you knew that Elliot and Darlene were brother and sister. Would it be a lesser show? It wouldn't have been a lesser show. Yeah. I don't think the show needs those things. Right. But I think in that particular case, I got excited about the show in yeah. the way that and then I, and then you find out Darlene is friends with Angela and that the way that episode opens, you're like, How are they yeah. how are they friends? Like the I thought that was just a beautifully done episode. So I think it just added to my enjoyment of it. And I didn't think it was at that point I wasn't like fed up with the show for, you know, trying to be clever in ways that it is now that I don't like. <laughs> I should say that I also don't object on general principle to, to films that play tricks with the perceptions of the main character. 
this is just a completely subjective thing, but I tend to prefer it when we know a, we have a sense of what exactly the distortions are, and then we're and then it sets up this interesting tension between the world as the hero sees it and the world as it actually is. Like mm-hmm. Taxi Driver, which is one of Sam Esmail's favorite films, is a great example of that. There's long stretches of that movie that are subjective, and they're they're from the perspective of Travis Bickle, and the world seems like a complete filthy scum pit. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like a film noir scum pit, and it's all colored, you know, red and green, like heinous. And uh, but then there's these other scenes, like in the election campaign headquarters, uh, where it just seems like oh, it's just normal life. And the, and when he comes barging in there into that space, which is not his space, you see him differently. And to me, that's as interesting as anything that they could have done to, quote unquote, shock me with right. how they tell the story. I mean, you know? it's interesting when we talk about twists, we keep coming back to films. And I think just in preparing for this, trying to think of good twists, I mean, I was thinking about a million movie ones and it was harder on the TV side. And I, and I think that speaks partially, at least, to the fact that Twists work better, I think, in condensed story forms. Mm. Yes. Um, and I think the best TV example, you know, were the, were the Twilight episode, Twilight yeah. Zone episodes. I, the, yes, exactly. Right. Um, and not every Twilight Zone episode ended with a twist or had a twist in it, but a lot of them were, and they were really well done. Um, but they were <laughs> that they were contained. It was an anthology series. It was a contained thing. And so once that twist yeah. happened, you moved on to the next story the next week. And the fact that there were often twists, certainly you could have been watching that. I... I, I can't even imagine the Twilight Zone in the internet era. It's, it's scary. Oh, my God. It would have been terrible. Well, the that, live that tweeting actually... would have been bad. It's like, oh, they're really on Earth. They're really on Earth. That Called right. it. <laughs> Called it. They were on Earth. That to serve of... man, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, Black Mirror kind of is like that in the internet age. And yeah. that episode, yeah, the uh, White Bear, what's it called? But a lot of those episodes had twists, and I thought that that was a particularly... Um, disturbing twist where this woman is in this kind of world where she's being tortured and wakes up every day and finds out she's kind of living the same torture every day. Right. Um, Which I don't really, I didn't really like it, but, Mm -hmm. but I think it was more along the lines of the twilight zone type of aesthetic. Jen, you raise a great point about, about the uh, compressed narrative being able to support this sort of thing a little better because if you've invested twenty, you know, twenty-two minutes in a show or forty-four minutes in a show, and then they give you a twist and you don't like it, you're not happy with it. You don't feel like you you don't you're not mad. You're not as mad, you know, right. like yeah, as right. if as if they if as if they string you along for a whole season or more, and then you're not happy with whatever they do. Then you're like, ah, I gave them ten hours of my life, and this is what they give me in return, really? Right. You know, like I was thinking Twilight Zone is, of course, the best example of that. But almost any any of those clever O. Henry type anthology shows like Alfred Hitchcock's Presents or, you know, or even the original Star Trek and, and the X-Files, I think, both borrowed from that mm-hmm. where there's a there's something you think you know what's going on, but it turns out you really don't. And then all is revealed in the last act. And uh, but there you have you have other things. There's more going on than just, you know, the question of what's really going on. Right. You know, right. you've got you've got banter, you've got procedural stuff. You sometimes you've got this ongoing conspiracy that's being unraveled that has nothing to do with the monster of the week. It's just a whole different ball of wax. Right. I mean, even in Twilight Zone episodes, you know, certainly part of the fun of of some of them was just trying to figure out what that, you know, perception altering moment was going to be. But but they're also just really well done episodes that are compelling for all kinds of other reasons too. So it's not like you're 
only watching for that reason. Um, well, and I'm not, and I'm not only watching Mr. Robot to see if I can be smarter than the show. You know, like right, there's, a, right. I'm going to continue to watch the show um, because there's so many other compensations to it. Besides, you know, there's this one thing that I really don't like, but there's all these other things that I love. So I'm going to keep watching it. And the fact that you know we can spend, you know. Ha- whatever, half an hour, 45 minutes talking about this one show that all of us have serious reservations about is also a, te- <laughs> is also a testament to the high quality of that show, like that its failures are more interesting than other shows' successes. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can, t- I, I, well, I think it's true. Yeah. I really do. Um, but, uh, but it, it's a problem and it's increasingly a problem now in the age of we either limited time or what people think of as limited time. Everybody complains that there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in a day to do all the things I want to do. Should I get invested in the show? There's only so many hours in the day. And you have to be judicious. And, and you know, that sets the bar very high for, for shows that are an ongoing serial narrative. And uh, if they mess up, boy, do people get mad. Yeah. Boy, do people get mad. And I was thinking about this a lot with The Night Of. Yes. The Night mm-hmm. Of. Like, they pulled some bullshit on Sunday. They really did. I mean, there were two things in there that I thought were just stupid. Actually, more than that, I could probably list ten things that are really bothering me about that show. But number one was that kiss. The kiss is yeah. The kiss in the out cell. of nowhere, like made me just. I think that and the moment when John Stone goes after Dwayne Reed and walks down some sort of tunnel, and then you never, you feels like a cliffhanger, and then you never see it again. Right. It made, it's made me question the story's decision making in this yeah. way, where I'm like. Where, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you going down these paths that don't make any sense for the show? I, it feels like loose threads in, in, in certain ways. There's a lot of things on that show also that just don't sit right with me. Like, I, I, you know, there are things where I think there's a lack of clarification on the show where it's like, and what I am seeing, like the gross incompetence of the defense and the prosecution in this case there's not enough information in the show for me to determine whether this is a comment on the terrible state of the criminal justice system or if they just don't know what they're talking about when they were writing the script. You know, like the, like the fact that this uh, – his, his, uh, his, his high school teacher testifies that he had not one but two rage incidents. And she's right. shocked by the revelation of the second one. It's like – First of all, you're only now you you never questioned this guy before. You're only you're only now getting around to this and like this is coming out of nowhere. Like surprise. You don't want to be surprised if you're a lawyer. It feels like they're making those decisions out of convenience for the plot that they want in terms of surprising us yes. as opposed to it feeling mm-hmm. like it's actually organic to the story, which is kind of built into the way the story the, into the whole premise, which is that this outrageous crime happens where obviously everyone would think he's guilty. There's no nuance to it. Right. You know, like, so you, you're able to sympathize with the prosecution a bit because you're like, of, of course they think he did this crime. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, it makes for a good inciting incident, but not doesn't make for great nuance in the storytelling well, and also how the, the criminal justice is And parts. also this whole business with the stepdad. It's like, okay, yeah. so her stepdad is this guy who marries considerably older women who are loaded and then shakes them down for money, however he can. Right. Right? And then we've met him, and he's played by, uh, what's that actor's name? The, the guy from the Girlfriend Experience in House of Cards, Paul Sparks, who always plays, like, cold, sleazy, sociopathic sorts of characters. And, uh, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I could drop right into the police department and, and 
keep pace with them or anything, but wouldn't you think that in a case like this, one of the first things you would do is ask who owns the house and what are their major relationships? Right. You know, once they find out that this girl stood to inherit the property, you know, or had inherited the property, what would, you know, it's just there's so many things that they didn't think to do until the last two episodes. And that just seems weird to me. Yeah. Weird. And and again, it goes back to this question is, are they, is this show about the incompetence of the people who are supposedly looking out for us in the criminal justice system, or are they just not telling the story well? Yeah, well, I watched Criminal Justice, which is the British series that this is based on, and it, it oversimplified some of these issues even more so. Hmm. Like, I, I feel like the HBO show, by comparison, is much more nuanced um, than the British show was. But to get back to the moment you mentioned earlier, the kiss uh, that happens in Sunday's episode – Something similar happens in the British series. And once I saw that, because I had the same reaction, I thought, this is ridiculous. Why are they doing this? Uh, in the British series, that sort of romantic undercurrent between um, the defendant, it's Ben Wishaw in the British series and and his attorney, that ends up coming to play into the finale um, mm. with something happening with the case Uh and 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 I mean, her name sort of being dragged through the mud in some ways. So I don't know if that's what's going to happen with this because they haven't shared the final episode. But um, I understood a little bit more once I saw the British series why they may have put that in. But I still felt like it didn't but work. It still feels like just because they clearly have to continue it in the finale. But just because they do doesn't make it make sense yeah. right? based on right. everything we've seen and – the way she it, plays it, that part, the way she plays that part, I didn't believe that yeah. she would do something that stupid. It's it seemed like a betrayal so of the character. For her character I then... just she just doesn't seem like somebody who would do that. And there's nothing established She's... psychologically that makes you go in retrospect. Oh yeah, of course. Now I understand I mean, why she would do that. I, there's nothing to that effect. I guess they maybe through the phone calls they have, they want to signify that they have some sort of connection or something. I, yeah, I but didn't like, feel like that came through. Yeah, I didn't feel that way at all. Um, it's it's what it, I call a, a because I say so storytelling choice. Right. And it also – there was a scene and I don't think it was in last week's episode. I think it was maybe the one before where um, her character and John Tuturo are in a bar and they're starting to talk. And I had in the back of my mind, I'm like, please don't have the two of them get together because I yeah. felt like it might be oh, going in that direction. Oh, I had the same moment, yeah. And it didn't. And I was like, oh, phew. And then and then when this happened, I was like, damn it. Come on, guys. <laughs> she doesn't have to they, be they John, involved with anyone. That's they have a, John Tuturo's co- character make some weird comments about women too. So yes. like, yes. is he going to be the creepy weird dude? I don't know. Like, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me feel like he could do something. John Turturro is the creepy <laughs> yeah. weird dude. I have to say though, I, I love him in this show. I think he did a, has done he, a great he job. Does, and the acting no, is that great. He's a national. No, know, he's a national treasure. John Turturro is a national treasure. <laughs> yeah. He is. There should be a statue of that freaking guy in front of a courthouse. I mean, the acting. I you think, know, or a bowling alley. I just don't think his or a skincare is. like facility of some kind. God. <laughs> I just don't think his character deserves as much screen time as he's gotten with mm-hmm. the eczema and the cats. When we have, I don't know, I disagree. I, I, I think it's what's made the show so interesting because he doesn't get as much screen time that that equivalent in the British series at all. Like we don't know any of this stuff. He does have eczema, but, but we don't know me, like so much about his eczema. And I think it's so interesting. To I don't me, know it why. just doesn't like tell me much about what the show is about. And I feel like I wish, would have much rather spent time getting to know Riz Ahmed's character and what he's going through in prison. Yeah. And yeah. you get no access to his thoughts and you just see him become this like this, you know, you see him transform in prison in this way that doesn't feel. Like- and it's not like he was a he was a ray of sunshine from the from the get go. 
<laughs> yeah, but he was like this, like wide-eyed, like nervous, you know. Yeah, or so you thought, kid. but then it turns out. Or he's so really, you thought, you know. exactly. Well, like, that's see, and that's that's that, how it feels to me. Well, that's kind of the that's kind of the, again that's kind of bringing it full circle there. That's like a lot of these twists that annoy me are or so you thought, right? Or so you thought, like just let me freaking think. Just show me the thing and let me react to it and think about it. You don't don't bring me down a path and then, you know, two-thirds or three-fourths of the way through, you turn around and go, or so you thought. Right. It's like, oh, they were really on a desert island. Oh, they were really in purgatory. Oh, it was all just a dream. And you know, we'll like see, yeah. we'll see what they do. They were really on the island, just to, just to clarify. That's true. They were really, <laughs> on, they were really the on the island. They were really on the then island. Then they were in purgatory much later. God. (laughs) Another thing that bugs me about that jailhouse kiss, and yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that there was an equivalent in the British version, so I guess I'm slightly less mad at the show for replicating it, Um, although I still think they shouldn't have done it based on the chemistry between those two actors in the American version. I don't think it supports it. But um, I'm really annoyed that every time I see a really talented, attractive, young, professional woman character on a show, they're going to end up sleeping with the guy that they're dealing with every day. That seems like the default thing. It's like the report. Female reporters always end up sleeping with their sources. Totally. Female lawyers always end up sleeping with their clients. Female anything always end up sleeping with the men who are usually 10 to 15 years older than them. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. And whenever they do it. And it's not just a question of, well, this happens in real life. It's like, of course it happens in real life. But that doesn't mean that every single time it has to happen in fiction. It's it's more interesting if it doesn't. Especially when there's no reason for it. No. And, and, so, and it felt kind of like a, the, the type of twist we're talking about where it just comes out of nowhere and you don't know what it's serving storytelling-wise. Right, right. And especially when journalists do it on TV shows now, it's like journalism – <laughs> journalism is such a such a terrible it's profession just, and so hard to make a living in it's like oh it's just an excuse to get guys obviously. it's right it's like it's like <laughs> she, that's that must be the entire point of it because they're not doing it for professional advancement right. because there's really no such thing anymore you know like when she slept <laughs> with kevin spacey and that when when uh, yeah. what's her name which which mara was it oh rooney no kate, kate mara kate mara yeah. yeah when kate mara sleeps with kevin spacey in the in the first season of house of cards i'm like seriously she's basically a she's a blogger like she doesn't even have she doesn't even have medical, you know. Like this is not this is not the way to get ahead. Like I don't think I don't think an organization like that gives a shit about any scoop that she could get. I don't believe that if right. she got that they wouldn't give her the byline anyway. They would have a little thing at the end that says additional reporting by. Right. You know, like there was nothing about that scenario that was credible to me, and all it did was debase her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it happens over and over again. If there's a female reporter, she is going to sleep with whoever she's dealing with invariably. It's, it drives me nuts, too. Yeah. I just and, – and there's just too many – there's too many things in the night of. There's so many things that are unusual about the night of, and then there's so many things that are the usual. And the two things sit against each other in ways that <clears throat> I think are awkward. They're very awkward. Like, you know, suddenly we've got John Turturro behaving like he's a private detective and he's tailing people around town. And he goes to the stepfather's gym and starts working out there. <laughs> as if that's you know, as if that's not irritating, and by this show's supposed real standards, implausible enough. Then the guy comes over and tries to drop a barbell on his neck in the plain yeah. view of like eight to ten witnesses. You don't right. think that would be on the cover of the Post and the Daily News the next day? You don't think that would be on you know Twitter like ten seconds after it happened? You know, I just yeah. I, it just it, things like that make me lose faith in a show that I love. I, I wonder if watching it week to week makes difference because I watched it all at once and I got fed up with I got I got kind of bored I think that was a large part of it 
with a lot of the the roads they were taking us down. With How many Halloween. episodes did you watch in a row? I watched seven like in a day. Oh and my it was god, too much. Yeah, yeah. I spaced mine out more than that. <laughs> I think that did make a difference. Honestly. I think so. I think viewing habits or. Like our viewing choices make a difference in how we experience shows, definitely. But the question is, um, can television shows do without gimmicks like these? You know, would they draw any kind of an audience if they, you know, like if The Night Of told its story in a more sort of orderly, reasonable, um, realistic fashion, or if Mr. Robot um, didn't feel like the necessity of pulling the rug completely out from under us once a season, would as many people watch the show? I think so. I mean, I hope so. I don't think it's I I don't know. I don't think Mr. Robot. I mean, for for one, I don't know how many pe- people are watching the show. I know viewership has gone down a lot this season. But I mean, The Americans, I think does a great job of doing kind of more subtle twists that keep you going. Mm-hmm. Like p- finding Paige finding about, out about her parents being spies was done so well because it's so unexpected because her parents just tell her yeah. and like it's, now that's a twist it's a twist yeah that's, you d- you now that's what i call to, a twist you don't but it's a twist because it's out. more normal it's yeah. taking something very unusual it, and putting in the context of normalcy exactly really. well and here's an even better twist for me which builds on that one which was great on its own terms which is not only do they not kill pastor tim but he becomes a confidant of the parents yeah. Like there's a scene where Elizabeth goes over to talk to him and she has a pretext for going over there, like a plot based pretext. But the real reason is she just wants to talk to Pastor Tim. Yeah. And, and that was so surprising. A- it was like I had a smile on my face all through that scene when I realized like, wow, because it was true to the way people actually are. You know, there's multiple levels going on there because, you know, she's partially trying to get close to him. But right. she's also getting something out of it and therapy basically yeah. which she scorns when her husband goes to est but here she is going seeking her own <laughs> right. version of therapy which is that's also interesting it is. and what i love about pastor tim too is how much he looks like clark yes, <laughs> every time yes. i look at him he looks so much wow. like clark. Yes. i've never thought of yes. that that's really funny. the episode of the show that matthew reese directed it ends with that fantastic montage uh, that music montage and and there's a shot of pastor tim and his wife playing miniature golf and but you see them from a oh, distance yeah. and at first i thought is elizabeth pregnant <laughs> Yeah, that show, man. And the yeah. answer was yes, technically. Oh, <laughs> right. Was, oh, true. <laughs> yes. And that's the twist. <laughs> yes. You know, this entire podcast has been a dream. <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafin. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. <laughs>